Well, for those of us who live at the end, at the beginning of the 21st century, the story of Uzzah and the ark is a very strange story. And our immediate reaction is, well, that's not fair. The poor guy was only trying to help. What's telling is that the folk who put the lectionary together leave out the part about Uzzah being killed by touching the ark. Clearly, they don't think they know what to do with it, and they're afraid nobody else will. In their version, David happily brings the ark into Jerusalem, singing and dancing all the way. But just ignoring that part of the story only allows us to duck what was, for ancient people, a very important understanding. For them, our concern for fairness and practicality, you know, without Uzzah, the ark would have fallen over, that has nothing to do with it for them. For them, the issue is holiness and how one approaches the holy. The story is really longer than what we have here, so let's go back and fill it out a little bit. The ark was not only the box that held the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments given to Moses upon that mountaintop. Here God sat enthroned invisibly upon the cherubim that graced the box itself. It was a box, and then there were cherubim on top of it. Long poles so you could carry it. And God sat enthroned invisibly upon those cherubim. And it was the closest that Israel ever came to depicting God. Come into the presence of the ark, and one comes into the very presence of God's own self. And the Old Testament reaction to coming into the presence of God is always, always with fear and trembling. Think of how often the Old Testament prophets cry out, Woe is me, for I have seen the Lord, and I will die. You see, what they understood is that here in God's presence is power. And it's the kind of power that's outside our control. The question is, what will it do? And more particularly, what will it do to me? The ark was the visible symbol of that power. And the rules for how it was treated were very carefully laid out. As it was carried through the wilderness journey, only certain people could carry it. And then only after purifying themselves, holiness was not something to be treated casually. In David's day, the ark had a very strange history. In danger of losing a war with the Philistines, Israel really needed a super weapon. And they brought the ark into the army camp. They knew it had power, and they wanted that power used against their enemies. Well, you know, God doesn't much like to be pushed around. And God allowed the ark to be taken by the Philistines. And the Philistines didn't fare any better than Israel. Mere possession does not make that power ours to command. So after a series of mishaps that told them very plainly that this ark was not for them, they returned it to Israel, like, get this thing out of here, we want you to have it back. Now David brings this same ark into Jerusalem. Is he going to try to put God's power at his disposal? Or will David submit himself to God? The death of Uzzah is a powerful reminder that God is not ours to command. And we come near the holy at our peril. Go back. Do any of you remember going to see the first of the Indiana Jones movies, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Remember when they open the ark and the bad guys melt and even the hero stands in peril of his life? 
And you know, for all the Hollywood special effects and drama, I really think they have the spirit of the thing right. Holiness is power over which you have no control. Come too close, and you stand in peril of your life. I read this story with that understanding, and I'm still not sure what to do with poor old Uzzah. But I do hear a ring of truth. Touch the holy, and something in us dies. And I think that's Paul's experience. The holy touched him that day on the road to Damascus, and something in him died. Now, the difference between Paul and Uzzah is that in touching the holy, Paul not only received a kind of death, but also new life. For Paul and for all Christians, baptism is the personal experience of that death and new life. Charlie Durham, who pastors a church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, says, My wife has always been deathly afraid of water. Quite possibly the only time her entire head was underwater was at her baptism at the Baptist church. So frightened was she that for two years, two years, she wrestled with giving her life to certain death. And though she literally saw hundreds of baptisms in which all survived, nevertheless, terror reigned. And right thinking, belief, and commitment had to wait until faith grew enough to allow her to trust. She understands Paul's words of baptism as death and resurrection. Or take the illustration of the butterfly. It's a very popular symbol for resurrection. Sometimes in Sunday schools, we had the kids raise butterflies and let them loose. The fantasy being that a fuzzy caterpillar spins a nice little sleeping bag around itself and emerges sometime later as a glorious new figure, which of course it does. But the reality is a little more gruesome. If you slice open a cocoon early in the process, you will find a bag of mush because the caterpillar must completely disintegrate before the butterfly can begin. The change is not a gentle aesthetic one. It is radical and complete. The birth of the new creature requires the absolute annihilation of the old. So what is it in us that dies? All of us who are baptized know ourselves well enough to know that we hardly live a, day, a life of absolute perfection from that day on. We still struggle with the old sins and temptations, but nevertheless, something is different. New Testament scholar William Barclay referred to baptism as that which cuts life in two. Quite literally, we live B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domini, the years of our Lord. That, I think, is what makes the difference. If we live as if our years belong to the Lord, that speaks a lot about the orientation of our lives. Our life is no longer just our own. And somehow the values and the priorities begin to shift. You become a different kind of person than you might have been otherwise. You know the ways in which your own life has shifted or changed because you're a Christian and continues to do that. It's not a once and for all process. You find the ways in which your way of life is different from some of the folk with whom you work or near whom you live. 
You know it makes a difference in how you approach the tough issues of the day. You know how to look beyond your own interests and into the interests of the broader community. And you're less concerned about number one and more about those hurting folks sitting probably right in the pew next to you or out in our communities. Charity doesn't start at home. It starts with the needy and the hurting and the oppressed. Another story, this one was told at General Assembly some years ago by a youth minister. It was, tells about the fact that it was confirmation and one member of the class had not been baptized. So he came to the pastor's office straight from Saturday morning soccer practice. Teenager, sweaty, smelly, and sat swinging his legs as she explained the meaning of baptism, the symbolism, and the way he would receive the sacrament in the coming worship service. We broke into her theological monologue to say, well, I'm going out to the lake with a couple of buddies this afternoon. Why don't we just get baptized out there? Well, you know, the pastor reached for a book on policy or sacraments or something to buy some thinking time before the real insight came. And she said to him, if you got baptized out there away from folk in the church, how would they ever know that you've been baptized? And without hesitation, the boy looked at her and said, well, by the way, I act, of course. Do people see the difference in your life because you have been touched by the holy? And has something in you died? And has something new been born in you? And do you know the difference? Amen. <laughs>